More than two decades in the making, a genomics revolution is now unfolding. The extent of the COVID-19 outbreak has prompted nations and biotech companies to pour billions of dollars in emergency resources into the field, underscoring its relevance in our lives and spurring it to new heights of potential. You are listening to Business Extra, coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Kelsey Warner, Future Editor. Before we get started, you can subscribe to Business Extra on your favorite podcasting app. Within a month of the first novel coronavirus case reported in Wuhan, the 29,903 letters that make up the disease's genome was published online. More than a year later, researchers around the world are now scrutinizing thousands of different genetic sequences of the COVID-19 virus as the disease passes from one living thing to another, causing it to adapt and mutate, further confounding immune systems and treatments. Understanding its genetic markers helps public health workers at nearly every layer of pandemic response, from contact tracing to surfacing treatments. To understand the business case for investing in life sciences, the industry that houses genomics, I don't have to look much further than my own backyard. Mubadala, with its $232 billion asset base, invests on behalf of the Abu Dhabi government. It has increasingly looked to invest in new technologies, especially in the healthcare sector and life sciences, with the pandemic accelerating the new strategic focus. Last month, Mubadala announced it would invest $1.1 billion in UK life science businesses as part of efforts to boost the sector following the pandemic. But the field has broader and far more joyous use cases than mitigating a deadly disease. Indeed, genomics puts the very future of health at stake. To talk more about this and explain some of how all of this works, I'm joined today by Damien Ng, a research analyst at Swiss wealth management firm Julius Baer. He's speaking to us from Zurich. Hey, Damien. Oh, hi there. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me for the conversation today. So you recently published some research on life sciences as an inv- asset class, as an investment opportunity, and you highlighted genomics as an area to watch. Can you lay out for listeners a basic description of what genomics is and what role it's playing right now in healthcare? Yes, definitely. is a very good question. Before we understand what genomics is, I mean, as in like, you know, because it's a huge research focus or research study that I've done. So first and, first and foremost, we should actually understand what is genomics. In fact, uh, some leaps and bounds have been made since the discovery of the molecule of science, and that is the DNA by a Swiss chemist more than a century ago. So the accomplishment of this important milestone in molecular biology has not only provided a basis for other scientists to build upon the newfound knowledge It has also paved the way for subsequent genetic research that examines the fundamental building blocks of all known living organisms. So in other words, genomics is basically the study of genes. And the study of these genes, or genomics in general, in short, has also enabled scientists to learn more about interaction between the genetic mutations and the fact that the DNA contains genetic information that is passed down from one generation to the next. And genetic information exists in everything from like you and me to say the COVID-19 virus. Uh, it's It makes up any living organism. It's the building block of anything alive. So viruses being very much alive. So coming to the fore in the last year was genetic sequencing for our COVID-19 pandemic response. And 
I think, too, in recent years, just the price and the speed with which we can sequence have both rapidly come down in the last two decades. And this last year, it's been just a huge proving ground for genomics. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Because it is the fact that, you know, a genomics, a genomics revolution is unfolding right before our eyes. Why is that so? Because the extent of the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak has prompted many biotech companies and public health institutions across the globe to turn their focus to the decoding of viral genetic material in the hope that it can identify the modes of transmission and develop treatments for the contagious diseases. So it is in this context that because, you know, this is all made possible because thanks to the declining genome sequencing cost that you have mentioned over the past few decades. So, um, so that's the reason why there is this uh, much more shift or growing interest for the topic on the topic of genomics worldwide. So I want to talk to you about genomics as an investment opportunity. Julius Baer recently put out an opinion that long-term investors, I'm quoting here, should maintain a positive stance on the genomics theme due to favorable political tailwinds, momentous demographic forces around the world, and the rise of chronic diseases associated with aging. Notably, Julius Baer said that they like companies involved in gene testing and gene modification. Can you explain why now is sort of a unique moment for investors? We spoke to the COVID-19 year that we just had, but like, are there other factors in play? Why is this an investment opportunity? Now, when it comes to, say, for example, to understand, you know, why, say, for example, gene testing or gene modification are so important in terms of uh, investment opportunities, we must understand, say, for example, structural trends that are shaping the world or currently underway uh, worldwide. And one of which actually is uh, our list actually four uh, main uh, major factors, let's put it this way. Uh, the very first one is population aging, because we've all seen, you know, read from newspapers, whether, you know, I, I'm very sure you've all read about this, about population aging. But the thing is that by the year, say, for example, 2030, for the first time in human history, the number of people aged 60 and over is expected to surpass that of children under the age of 10. And also at the same time, for example, for instance, like in the year 1950, there were only like, say, 200 million people aged 60 plus worldwide. But that number, you know, uh, just, just last year, 2019, that was roughly like 1 billion and according to United Nations, this number is going to set, I mean, it's set to go even further to nearly like 1.4 billion by the year 2030 and roughly 2.1 billion by 2050. So in other words, the world is getting older. But the thing is that actually with age, it comes along with greater spending on healthcare services. And also because why? Because we tend to also grow older. I mean, like, you know, the fragility of life, we tend to get, you know, also sicker when we grow older. So that is one actually uh, uh, one of the key reasons. Now, the second reason uh, for this shift or this focus on genomics is the fact that about chronic diseases. Why? Because it's like, you know, chronic diseases, whether it is a form of Alzheimer's or cancers, are on the rise every year. Now, just to give you some example, like in my home country in Singapore, for instance, I'm kind of actually pretty uh, surprised, to be very honest, that increasingly uh, people in the age group of 40s, uh, between the age of, say, 40 and 49, increasingly, I mean, there are more and more people having Alzheimer's. 
that is really, uh, I think that's, that's pretty shocking because in the past, we used to associate Alzheimer with people who are a bit like, say, maybe above the age of 60, above the age of 70. But with this increasing, you know, pressure on, you know, performance-based society, always about quick, you know, very fast, very quick. So I know it has an impact, adverse impact on people's health. And that is one thing uh, about, you know, we have like Alzheimer. We also have like cancers. Uh, cancers, why? Because first of all, like uh, say in the year 2019, uh, according to United uh, World Health Organization, worldwide, 19.19 million people develop cancers worldwide. And out of these 19 million people who contracted cancer, more than half, that is roughly like 10 million, they died from this horrible disease. Now, the good things actually is that the incidence, new incidence of cancer is declining over the years, thanks to gene therapy, you know, thanks to, you know, new uh, prevention, early stage and the early stage diagnosis. And that's the second point. The third point is actually on imprecision medicine. Even up to today, uh, according to a research study that I've uh, looked into, for instance, that even the top 10 grossing drugs in the US, for, for instance, they do not really have a positive impact on people's health, for instance. Uh, one good example lies in, say, uh, even drugs for to cure uh, high blood pressure. Uh, the drug used to treat high blood pressure is called Crestol. But the thing is actually that for every one person uh, or every one patient whose health condition sees an improvement after consuming the drug or the medication, more than around like 19 people do not see any positive effect at all. Because in other words, that means these medications, existing medications are not really precise enough to treat the, uh, the health condition that individuals have. And sometimes by taking this Crestol, for instance, they develop even other more or worse side effects. And finally, we also come to the uh, very costly healthcare, uh, growing healthcare cost worldwide. Huh? So in the US, for instance, uh, in a typical or an average American spent roughly like 12,000 US dollars just on healthcare alone. Uh, but the thing is actually that the health outcomes are not so favorable as we have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of actually say the number of incidents and even in terms of uh, the life expectancy that they have, and also in terms of actually, say, for example, the figures related to the COVID-19 statistics. Okay, so what you just described was exponential growth on our healthcare burden globally, really ineffective prescription medication, a growing reliance on medication, and ballooning costs across the board. So when you turn to investors and say this is an opportunity, what sort of asset classes are they investing into? Is it R&D? Is it lab space? Is it drug discovery? Like, What are the things that are the actual investments? What are people buying into? There are several aspects, let's put it this way, because healthcare or biotech industry is very broad. Huh? There's a very broad uh, value chain, let's put it this way, because we've got uh, companies that are sort of like startups, they are involved in the research R&D phase. So they're still in the phase of R&D, and it's like researching for new drugs, for instance. Huh? Uh, there are some other companies that, companies that are already more, say, developed, more mature. Huh? They are listed on a stock exchange. So there are much bigger companies. So they are they have different pipelines. Uh, so they must have a very uh, a rich pipeline of 
products and services or, or drugs, as we can say that. Uh, so uh, for us, in uh, for my case, actually in the case, of, I mean for my for my research, I put a great deal of focus on. Uh, companies that are already listed on the stock exchange. So, in other words, actually, that they have um, you see bigger companies because usually they have a, a wealth of say different products or, or, or pipeline. Let's put it this way. Uh, that uh, we can be sure that if let's say for example, like if they do not pass, you know, because all this what do you call that uh, clinical trial phase. They are like trial one, trial two, trial three, right? So. The thing is that if their drug, one drug actually were to fail in trial stage one or stage two, at least they have other products that can actually say to balance out a bit uh, in terms of actually say for the, for the company's uh, viability over the longer term. Whereas for those smaller companies, for instance, uh, let me say, for example, like startups, usually they are involved in just one or two drugs. So if, let's say, for example, one drug were to say fail the test. So it's going to be pretty devastating for such companies, right? Because they only have, say, kind of like a one drug wonder, let's put it this way, or, or one drug candidate wonder. So it creates, it is more risky for, for the investors. So for us, and uh, from the bank's perspective, we, uh, or at least for my research, so I put the focus predominantly on companies that are already uh, listed on the stock exchange and also on bigger scale companies. When you think about genomics, and how it might shape the future of healthcare. What does the next five or 10 years look like? Where do we go from here off of this, this feeling of velocity that we have coming out of the last year? As I said earlier about the rise of chronic diseases. Now, so there are many medical innovations in the areas of, say, Alzheimer's disease and also cancer, uh, which would not have been, un- which were unthinkable merely a decade ago. So these could emerge, for instance. Uh, in that case, we are uh, standing an important juncture in the history of healthcare because um, because every new in, uh, discovery adds to brings us closer to precision medicine. So, in that sense, we can actually in that in that context, we can even envisage future health where diseases are better managed. You know, our human lifespan could be longer, and even medical treatments are more personalized based on an individual's unique genetic traits rather than a one-size-fits-all approach for the entire patient population. And also not forgetting that there is now a growing research, uh, amount of research you know, into the longevity gene, huh? a gene that is some, or some, some scientists have found to be able to repair cells. So if more research is carried out you know, in the future or even currently, we may have actually longer lifespan and even prevent other age-related diseases. So in this context, maybe there is a, even though there are some people who might say that, oh, it's kind of crazy, we're not going to live actually like past 100 years old or 150 years old, it might not seem possible, but there is a very uh, uh, meaningful Chinese proverb that says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one single step. So in other words, actually, we have to make that one step just to do the experiments, to do, you know, in a very structured manner. So to actually find out new knowledge and perhaps even possible solutions for um, our health challenges. As much as I would love to end on a proverb, I need to ask you, Okay, so what makes Mm -hmm. genomics seemingly exciting right now is it feels really analogous to uh, the AI data revolution, like sequencing of 
genetics is inherently it's data. You're, you're talking about letters. You're talking about something that can be sequenced, you know, as letters. You, it's, it's less ephemeral, I think, than some concepts, but it gives way to huge amount of risk when you talk about security, privacy, you know, patient protections and those sorts of interests. How much do you think about that? Is that a real limitation of future gene therapies? Is regulation keeping pace with the evolution of this field? Because definitely health data is a major concern for, for the consumers, for patients, and also for health, uh, health uh, insurance companies, and also for the medical professionals. That is a fact. Uh, that's where I would like to draw your attention to uh, a very interesting study that was published uh, by Philips Future Health Index in uh, the year 2020. Uh, according to this survey that they did actually for um, 15,000 medical professionals, if I'm not wrong, across 15 countries, uh, uh, the medical professionals are under the age of 40. So that is relatively young uh, uh, medical professional experts. Now, the thing is actually that according to this study, it showed that cultural attitudes do play a very important role in the adoption of health data. Now, according to this uh, study, was that uh, more than 90%, 90% of the respondents in Saudi Arabia and also in Singapore they believe, or the medical professionals there, they reply saying actually that health data, okay, if they have to choose between health data and also privacy concern, do they agree with the statement that health data is more important than privacy concern? So more than 90% of the respondents in, in these countries, in Saudi Arabia and Singapore, they say, yes, it is more important. And compare that to, say, only 67% of the, of the respondents in France and in the U.S. So in other words, actually, cultural attitudes do play a very important role uh, when it comes to the adoption of uh, uh, data health. Now, having said that, despite all these, you know, like, say, uh, um, uh, positive side of all these uh, gene, you know, it sounds very good, very promising for the future, especially when it comes to um, gene testing and gene modification, these or bioscience, uh, the space of bioscience has also raised ethical concerns over the unintended consequences that the technology can bring forth for society. Genetically modified chickens are one thing, genetically modified humans. <laughs> <laughs> but are you hopeful that we're headed in the right direction on that front? Or is there a dystopic scenario that you could see playing out in certain pockets of the world? I do feel that we are moving in the right direction because we have to, I mean, the scientists, the scientific communi uh, community, they have to, you know, of course, they have to discuss together actually with, uh, with the society, engage in debates with the society and also with the government's public health uh, institutions uh, and, their, and their governments about the right step, you know, in terms of ethical concerns for uh, with regard to the application of biotech or life sciences. Now, on having said that, for instance, just to draw your attention to that, we actually say this bio, uh, liquid biopsies, which has been on the rise, uh, especially with regards to you know testing for cancers, you know, uh, cancers relating to the lung, to the breast, or to the prostate. Huh? But the thing is that the technique 
has not yet become a standard testing procedure in a doctor's office, despite its potential to revolutionize cancer care. So these are some of the questions that will prompt, you know, that have to be answered in terms of actually whether, you know, to what extent can should actually these uh, technologies be applied in a doctor's uh, in a doctor's uh, office but over the longer term i can imagine that uh, it we are heading in the right direction because as the society is moving towards say uh, uh, um, instead of actually moving away from a one size fit all uh, solutions for all you know of uh, our our healthcare problems to a much more tailor made solutions but it's going to take a massive coordinated approach by the sounds. Definitely, definitely. Damien, it's been really fun to talk to you today. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and do subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. All that's left is to thank our producers, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you for listening. <laughs>